The history of competitive marathon running is actually pretty recent. How did the marathon come to be? Who decided it was going to be 26.2 miles? And who was the first man to win the event in the Olympic Games? That is the topic of today's Footnoting History. Hello, this is Esther, and welcome to the August 17th edition of Footnoting History. So I've looked at the official report of the 1896 Olympic Games, and in it, it tells a very interesting story on how the eventual marathon winner, the 23-year-old Spiridon Lewis called Spiros, uh, stopped in the town of Pickermy in Greece to take in some refreshments. Uh, Pickermy is about halfway uh, between the town of Marathon and Athens, and that's where the 17 competitors began their race at 2 p.m. on April 10th in Marathon. The finish line is at the Stadium of Athens, and there are thousands of eager Greeks waiting for Spiros, hoping to see a fellow Greek cross the finish line first. So at Pickermy, they informed Spiros that his fellow competitors were way ahead of him in the race. And without a hint of panic or lack of confidence, according to the report, he replied with utter coolness, never mind, I will overtake them and beat them all. He finishes the 40-kilometer race in first place in 2 hours, 58 minutes, and 50 seconds. The crowd goes wild. His final entry into the stadium was a sight to behold. His face is sunburnt. Uh, he's betraying these great signs of, of fatigue and pain. Uh, thick drops are, of sweat are standing out on his forehead, and he's wearing this very traditional Greek flannel-type suit, and it's completely covered in dust. But he keeps on running, and with great determination, he finally reaches the seat of King George of Greece, who greets him very warmly, and the Greek flag is hoisted up on the mast at the entrance of the stadium, and there are deafening sounds of shouting and cheering. The Greek public had been very excited about the revival of the Olympic Games, but had been disappointed that no Greeks until that point, had won first place in any track and field event thus far. They had even lost the discus throw, which had been an event from the ancient games, to a foreigner, to an American. Spiros Lewis's victory not only represented a national triumph for the Greeks, but also a moment that connected modern Greek identity with the classical heritage of Greece. Spiros's win effectively forged this link between the greatness of ancient Greece and the pride of a recently unified nation. The story of Spiros Lewis and his victory brings up a lot of interesting questions about the origins of the marathon as a modern Olympic sport, not least because it was never an event in the ancient Olympic Games to begin with. So uh, the following questions that we're going to ask today and hopefully answer are why and how did the marathon race become an Olympic event? How was the distance of the marathon decided? And why did Spiros Lewis, purportedly of peasant origin and from a small village, why did he decide to compete in such an exhausting event? And perhaps most important of all, what legacy did he leave behind after his momentous win that catapulted him to national fame. 
Well, to answer the first question, we have to begin with the simple fact that nowhere in ancient Greek literature is there any mention of a race of 40 or more kilometers. The idea of the marathon as a distance that is more or less the 26.2 miles that we run today came from Herodotus's histories, in which he tells the story of one of the great rivalries in ancient history, that of Athens and the Persian Empire. According to the story, the Persians landed on the plain of Marathon, a city in Attica, in about 490 BCE, and they were fully prepared to show the Athenians who were the bosses of the Eastern world. The Athenians decided to leave the city, march out, and attack the Persians at once. That was their strategy. But before they could do that, they wanted to send off a message of help to Sparta. A message containing such important and delicate information had to be entrusted to a very special messenger, or as Herodotus described, the Athenian named Pheidippides, a trained runner still in the practice of his profession. This uh, man, Pheidippides, according to the story, he was able to race the 150 miles of rugged terrain that lay between Athens and Sparta, only to find that the Spartans were actually unable to send reinforcements to Athens before the full moon. The Greek satirist Lucian, writing about 600 years after the fact, indicated that Pheidippides was actually present at the Battle of Marathon and raced to Athens from Marathon with the victory message. So we're getting two different, two different uh, versions of the story. And according to Lucian, Pheidippides' last words were, Joy to you, we've won. And he collapses because he's died of exhaustion. And so some version of this story, or Pheidippides as a character, showed up in works written by Aristophanes, Pliny the Elder, and Plutarch. But it was the 19th century romantic poets that popularized and immortalized Pheidippides' legendary run from Marathon to Athens. Lord Byron, an English poet who stirred romantic sympathy for the Greeks and their struggle for national independence in the early 19th century, had written in very impassioned tones about the glory of Marathon, both the city and the famous battle. But it was not until Robert Browning's dramatic poem, Pheidippides, that this famous messenger is credited with making both the 150-mile run between Athens and Sparta, as well as the shorter distance of 40 kilometers, or 24.8 miles, that lay between Athens and Sparta. Browning's poem opened the literary floodgates as poetry and novels about Marathon followed in the years after. Browning was really the one responsible for making this story so famous. And so this nobleman uh, named Baron Pierre de Coubertin was the one who conceived of the idea of putting on a modern version of the Olympic Games in the late 19th century. But it was Michel Bregal, who was a linguist, but also a very passionate student of Greek mythology, who suggested to the Baron of replicating Pheidippides' legendary run and offering a trophy to the victor in the new Olympic Games, which was held in April of 1896. The Olympic course between Marathon and Athens was 40 kilometers, and in subsequent Olympic Games, the distance would vary according to the venue and to the city. In the games that took place in Paris in 1900, for example, the distance was 
40.2 kilometers, which is 25 miles. Our standard marathon distance of 26.2 miles first appeared at the London Olympic Games of 1908. British officials mapped a course that accommodated the King of England, which began at Windsor Castle and finishing at the Royal Box in the London Olympic Stadium, a distance of precisely 26 miles and 385 yards. Subsequent marathon distances still varied until the Olympic Games returned to Paris in 1924, and the course distance was set at 26.2 miles, after which that distance pretty much became the standard. A very interesting side note that I have to add to the story of the first modern Olympic marathon before we get to Spirit on Lewis is that while preparations and the marathon trials were underway in March of 1896, a woman by the name of Stamatis Rovithi became probably the first woman in history to run a marathon when she covered the proposed course from Marathon to Athens. As in the ancient games, women were barred from competing in the modern Olympic Games. Uh, but another enterprising woman by the name of Melpomene presented herself to the race organizers as an entrant, but they denied her the opportunity to compete. She ran the course anyway on the day of the event and completed it in four and a half hours, arriving at the stadium about an hour and a half after Spiros Lewis, although they did not let her in the stadium. She actually had to finish the course outside in the city. Women uh, would not really get the opportunity to run an Olympic marathon until almost a century later in the Los Angeles Olympic Games of 1984. So back to our story and Spirit on Lewis. So the date of the first Olympic marathon race is set. The course is mapped out between Marathon and Athens and 17 competitors, most of whom are Greek, show up on race day to compete, although originally there were 25 entrants. Spiros Lewis, I think, was an unlikely winner, and he was unlikely to win because in the marathon trials that took place before the Games in March, he had come in fifth place. Spiros' origins are sort of shrouded in mystery because after his historic win at the Olympics, it became increasingly difficult to disentangle what was real and what was part of his publicity. One of the most famous myths concerning Spiros and his class status and his origins uh, was that he was a poor water carrier who ran daily alongside his mule between his home in Marusi and Athens, hence his formidable track and field abilities. Mostly, he was just described as a poor shepherd, although he was neither very poor nor a shepherd. In reality, from what we know, he was from a fairly well-to-do farming family who owned property around Marusi. He also had served time in the Greek army, so he was a soldier. Spiros, as far as his motivations go, he likely saw participating in the Olympic Games as a very exciting and patriotic opportunity, but he was also very much encouraged by his commanding officer to participate because his commanding officer knew very well of Spiros's athletic ability because uh, he would send out Spiros to get him cigarettes and he was always so quick to get them. So he knew he, knew he was up to the task. There was also the prospect of impressing a certain woman from an aristocratic family whom Spiros had had his eye on for a while. And he ended up marrying this woman two months after his victory at the games. So he was able to impress her. 
And in the aftermath of his win, his supposed humble pastoral background was played up considerably for the press because peasant origin or the fact that he was a peasant was very suitable to the nationalistic narrative of Greek endurance and strength, qualities that could be traced from the ancient Greek past to the present. Spiros's win also romanticized recent Greek history, especially the role of the peasantry. His victory symbolized the very uncomplicated connection between the peasant heroes of the earlier 19th century Greek independence movement and modern Olympic athletes. In every photograph that we have of Spiros, he is wearing the fusanela, which is the traditional dress of the Greek peasantry and which deeply signified a Greek cultural identity. It's unclear whether this was a self-conscious decision on his part at the time, his relatives later said that Spiros probably wore the fusanela because he didn't have anything else to wear. But whether it was a conscious decision or not, Spiros was clearly aware of what it came to represent, what this traditional dress came to represent. Because when he posed for pictures with other Olympic athletes during the 1896 Games, but also later on, even at his last real public appearance at the Berlin Games of 1936, he refused to wear anything else but the fustanela he stood out as undeniably Greek. He was indeed the only Greek athlete to wear the national costume on the day of his win. So Spiros became a Greek national hero, even though his win outside of Greece impressed virtually no one, since most of the marathon competitors were Greek, which, you know, to the rest of the world, that pretty much meant Greece was going to win the event anyway. But to the Greeks, it was a significant moment of nationalistic pride. Even 40 years later, when Spiros recalled the moments after his victory, he said, that hour was something unimaginable and it still appears to me in my memory like a dream. Twigs and flowers were raining down on me. Everybody was calling out my name and throwing their hats in the air. Spiros was at once a soldier in the army, an ancient Olympic athlete reborn for the modern era, and a peasant of humble and authentic Greek origins. All of those three qualities wrapped into one. He was Greek patriotism incarnate. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter, The History Footnote. Join us next week for part two of our Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.